And greetings, brethren. Welcome to the Feast of Trumpets. And here we are with the time going by. We're, we're at the fourth holy day of the year. And the first holy days of the year apply directly to the church. Now the last five then, trumpets, atonement, and uh, tabernacles in the last great day, that's actually four, the last four apply to the world and also to the church. As we come down through Leviticus 23, it lists all the holy days, and all the holy days are important to God. And they tell the, the, the plan and the story that God wants us to know so that we can understand why we're here, where we're going, what God is doing, how he's doing it, approximately when he is going to do it, and so that we can have understanding and faith and hope. And that's why we have the holy days. Now, the Feast of Trumpets is an unusual feast in as much as that it pictures a being a war feast from this point of view. Let's go to Leviticus 23, which we always do. Leviticus 23. And here we have the Feast of Trumpets. And it says in verse 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now, the memorial of blowing of trumpets means this, that the trumpets were to be blown all day long. So this is a feast where then it incorporates everything that it talks about what the trumpets are used for in Numbers 10. And we're going to see this as we go through the explanation of the day. But let's come over here to Numbers 10. And let's go back and review the use of the trumpet. Now, there were special trumpets that were made. One, verse 2, Numbers 10, the calling of assembly. As we will see, God is going to gather all nations there in Armageddon. And then it's blown for an alarm or a warning, which this day is. And then it's also, verse 9, and if you go to war. So this is a war feast, but it also has after the war is over, you have the recovery of it, so you also have the trumpet here. And in the day of your gladness, the day of your solemn, in your solemn days, the beginning of your month, you shall blow the trumpet over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices, over your, your peace offerings. So the trumpet had a lot to do with the, with the ceremony at the temple. And of course, as we will see, as we already have leading up to Pentecost, that the trumpet plagues in Revelation 8 and 9, have an awful lot to do with the fulfilling of God's plan and the carrying out of what he's doing leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in Leviticus 23, it says that on this day, we are to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And, of course, we always uh, take up an offering on the holy days, and the, the an offering is something that you need to determine, something that you need to plan for, something that reflects your thankfulness to God for the blessings that he has given you, and it has to be from your heart. And so God expects us to do that, and then we in turn use this money to help the brethren. 
Everything that you send in is used to produce books, booklets, tapes, CDs, uh, pay for mail, pay, pay for office help, and all of these things. So if you appreciate receiving the tapes, if you appreciate receiving the things, then you can express it back in an offering which will then be honored by God because you give from a willing heart and attitude. So at this time, we'll pause and we'll take up the offering. Now, as we saw leading up to Pentecost and including Pentecost, that the return of Jesus Christ is a spectacular event. And it's something that is not just done in an instant. And it's something that the whole world will understand when the time comes. And it will be something that no one is going to be able to avoid. It's not going to be a secret rapture. It's not going to be a secret coming. It is going to be known in power and strength and glory, and especially as we will see for the Feast of Trumpets, because the Feast of Trumpets caps off the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, when Jesus was talking to his disciples on the Passover night, he said, if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. So Christ is going to receive us to himself. But many people don't believe in the return of Jesus Christ anymore. And we're going to find we're going to find that that is going to be more and more of a problem. And also that people are 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 so deceived with the, the rapture, even to the point that some of them say, well, you can receive the mark of the beast and still go to heaven. Well, I don't read that in the Bible. The Bible says you have to have victory over the beast and over his mark and over his number and over his name. But nevertheless, they are not going to believe it because there is going to be, as we'll see a little later, a false messiah, a false prophet, and they are going to deceive the whole world under the spiritual power of Satan and the demons. Now, the Apostle Peter wrote of this in Second Peter 3. Remember this, that Jesus even said, when he comes, will he find faith in the earth? Now, of course, there will be some with his church. But even then, the quality of faith is in question. Now, here in Second Peter 3, here's what Peter wrote. He said, now, beloved, I'm writing this second epistle to you. Uh, in both, I am stirring up your minds by causing you to remember. In order for you to be mindful of the words that were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken to us by the apostles. Knowing this first, that in the last days there shall come mockers, walking according to their own personal lust, and asking, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the forefathers died, everything has remained the same from the beginning of the creation. And so they have ignored the facts of history, as he says there in verse 5. They have ignored the facts in the, in the geological table of the earth. They have believed in evolution. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the in the the second return of Jesus Christ. 
And so when Jesus Christ comes, you wait and see. He is going to be counted as an alien, he and his angels and all the saints with him. We're going to see this. But let's look at some of the prophecies which tell us about the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth and the return of Jesus Christ in power and in glory and in a scope that is going to be awesome indeed, far greater than even most of us in the church have ever assumed or ever thought of. It is going to be something else. The whole book of Daniel tells us some of the things here uh, about the return of Christ and when these things will be and how they are going to happen and what, what it is going to be like. Here, the book of Daniel. Let's come to Daniel 2 because here's a promise that was given to Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation of the dream that he had, which Daniel interpreted for him. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but we'll just come here, uh, Daniel, the second chapter, and let's pick it up here in verse 44. We're going to see how this fills in in the book of Revelation in a little, little later. And in the days of these kings, so there's coming a time when all of these things will be, and they're going to be done on time according to God's schedule, according to his plan, as outlined by the holy days, and God has predetermined all of this. You know, the apostles wanted to know, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, no, you go your way and you preach. That's given into the hands of the Father, and that's under his authority. So it talks about it. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now notice how it's going to come. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It's going to be given to the saints. And we're going to rule, and we're going to reign, and we're going to help straighten out this whole earth. You see, the Protestants focus in on having sin forgiven so that they can be right with God and they can be saved and they can go to heaven. And they never get past beginning. God wants us to grow in character, grow in knowledge, grow in understanding. He wants us to develop the character so that we can rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Because it's not going to be left to other people, it's going to be for the saints. And this whole civilization of this world is going to come to a destructive end. That's what this feast pictures. The destruction of the civilizations of this world. And it's pictured right here. And it shall be, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand for ever. For as much as you saw, the stone was cut out uh, out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to you, the king, what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now, all of the details are not given here. Some of the details are given a little later in chapter 7. Let's come over here to chapter 7, and let's see this. This is quite a thing. Brethren, God has called us to the greatest calling, 
to the greatest event, to be able to be uh, partakers of it, to be able to be part of it, to be able to to help solve all the problems of this world and know for sure they're going to get worse. Now, Daniel 7. And let's pick it up here in verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. That's how he's coming. That's how he left. That's how he's returning. And the book of Revelation says, Every eye shall see him. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Now you see, this is going to bring the beast, the false prophets, the nations of the world into a head-on confrontation with the return of Jesus Christ and the saints of God. But as we are going to see, they are going to lose. And they are going to lose big time. Now when we come over here a little later in chapter 7, let's pick it up here in verse 27. And let's see again. Dominion was given to Christ, and then he gives some of that dominion to us to rule and reign with him. And the kingdom and dominion, verse 27, Daniel 7, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. But the thing that is profound and the thing that is important is that the way this is going to happen and how big an event this is going to be is going to be uh, almost beyond uh, the scope of our imagination. So maybe we can help expand that a little more today to understand that we are called to the greatest, most significant, and most profound event to ever occur since the creation of the world. And that's what this Feast of Trumpets is all about. Let's come over here to Daniel 12 and verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of your people. So this is going to rescue the physical tribes of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, every one that's found written in the book. Now we saw that. We saw how the first resurrection takes place on Pentecost. And we're going to look at the events that take place after we're on the Sea of Glass leading up to the literal return of Christ and the saints on the earth. Now let's come to Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, and let's see what a tremendous event this is going to be. This is going to be something uh, just affecting the whole world. Now, Daniel, not Daniel, but Jeremiah 25 and verse 12. Verse 12. Yes. 
And it shall come to pass when the 70 years are accomplished. Now, it finishes off with the 70-year captivity of the Jews in Babylon, but then it extends out way beyond to the end. So this prophecy begins here and then projects to the return of Jesus Christ. And I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in the book which Jeremiah the prophet has prophesied against all the nations. Now you go back and you read uh, Jeremiah 50, 51, and 52, and you see how profound this is going to be. He's going to bring to pass all his words. And many nations and great kings shall serve themselves also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their hands. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So then Jeremiah said, Then I took the cup at the Lord's hand, made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. And he starts right at Jerusalem. Then it lists all the nations. Now come over here to verse 26, and let's see how far this goes. And all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world. So when we come to the end time, and we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ, we're talking about worldwide events. And we're living at a time when all of these things are possible. They weren't possible 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. But now, they are possible. All the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth. Now, that's very inclusive, isn't it? And that's quite a thing to understand. Now, notice, notice what it's going to be. Down here, verse 29. For lo... I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. Now, God is saying, I want you to understand something very important. If I start correcting and bringing evil upon the city that is called by my name, the rest of you are not going to escape. And we're going to see the thing at Jerusalem is going to key these end-time events as never before. And we can see how that is coming more and more and more and more, can't we? Now notice, he says, which is called by my name, shall you be utterly unpunished? You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord. Now how all-encompassing is that? That's profound. Remember, Jesus said, it is a time of trouble that has not been since there was a nation on earth, nor nor ever shall be, and unless God had not limited that time, all flesh would be destroyed. So we need to get our thinking caps on, and we need to think big 
We need to think huge. We need to use the Spirit of God to understand as greatly as possible, as much as we can, what God is going to do. Now, what you need to, need to do in, in this is, is understand this. Because these events are coming this way, do not be fearful. Do not be cowardly. Do not run and try and hide in a corner. God wants us to be courageous. God wants us to stand for the truth. God wants us to understand one thing very important. We are on God's side, and there is nothing that anyone can do to us to turn back what God has promised for us and to turn back the hand of God. Just like he told Jeremiah when he said, I want you to go. He said, I'm going to give you a forehead of flint, so you will speak the words that I want you to speak, and don't be afraid of them, don't be afraid of their faces, don't be afraid of their threats. So likewise, with the events that are coming here at the end time, don't be afraid. But you know, as Luke wrote, look up and rejoice, for your salvation is near. Verse 30, therefore prophesy... Uh, against them all these words and say to them, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation, and he shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. That's why the book of Revelation is so profound, because it shows how this is going to happen worldwide. And the noise shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh, and he will give them that are wicked to the sword. When we read the book of Revelation, the deaths are going to be astounding. It's going to be something. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coast of the earth, and the slain of the Lord. Now, we're going to see this in Revelation 16 a little later. The slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried, and they shall be dung upon the ground. Then he lays it all at the feet of of the pastors and the shepherds. So there we have quite a, quite a situation with this as it is coming. Let's see how all of this is going to develop, however long it will be. There's one thing we need to do. We need to always be ready. And as it says in the King James, we need to occupy. That means we need to be doing. And as we see the day coming closer, we need to put forth the effort. We need to draw close to God. We need to be filled with his spirit. Now, Revelation 13 tells us how this whole worldwide system is going to develop. And it's going to be awesome indeed. And there is going to come out of it the false Christ, the false Messiah, who is called the beast. And the world is being set up for it. 
Part of it has to do with the movie of the Passion. Part of it has to do with the Da Vinci Code and the Holy Grail. Part of it has to do with how everything is being organized worldwide. Part of it has to do with the Mark of the Beast. Part of it has to do with the the other events that are taking place, but they are all focusing together on fulfilling Revelation 13 to an absolute T. Now let's begin, verse 1, Revelation 13. And John saw this prophecy taking place, and I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, the signs of Satan the devil. This is his system. And it's going to be his grandest, most glorious system. And on his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Now, this is going to be an unusual political setup because it's going to amalgamate and bring in the best of all the civilizations in the past so that it is going to look like this is a wonderful and a magnificent thing. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, so it's going to have swift military. And his feet like the feet of a bear, it's going to have power. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. So all of this comes from Satan the devil. God is going to let Satan the devil rise to where he's going to be convinced in his own mind that he's going to fulfill Isaiah 14 and finally have the forces and finally have the ability and finally have the capacity to rise and usurp the throne of God. And we will see how he's going to try and convince the nations to do that. And it's going to be Quite a deception indeed. Now let's continue on. Verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, slain to death. But his deadly wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. And you can see how quickly this will take place. You can see what a fantastic thing this is going to be. So here we have. If the prophecies are correct back there in Daniel 9, which they are, all the prophecies are correct, it's just a matter of our interpretation. So when we come to a final seven-year period, we're going to have the first three and a half years be uh, some of the most astounding things with false prophets, with miracles, with calling fire down from heaven, with nations... uh, Uh, giving their power and authority to the beast with peace coming on the earth. And yet the, the prophets of God and the ministers of God are going to be saying, don't be deceived, this is a deception, and it's not going to work because this is not of God, this is of Satan the devil. And they're going to be some fanatics. Now, we don't know who they are, but maybe they're going to be fanatical Jews who will come and try and assassinate the beast. So he receives a deadly wound, but his deadly wound is healed. Now notice what happens after the deadly wound is healed. We'll see this here. And they worship the dragon. That's why every vestige of Christianity must be destroyed in this plan that they're bringing about. So that Satan worship and witchcraft 
And all of these things will be the predominant form of worship. And that's the only way that they're going to bring in a whole one world religion, which will be an amalgamation. It will have parts of all the religions of the world, just like the civil authority here has parts of all the great kingdoms of the world. But just like all the kingdoms of the world are going to give their power to the beast, all the religions of the world are going to give their power and authority to the second beast. Now here's what they're going to do. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able, uh, who has the power to make war against him? And a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies were given to him. And authority was given to him to continue 40 and two months. So after the deadly wound is healed, he continues for 40 and two months. The same exact time that it talks about in Revelation 11 that Jerusalem is trodden down of the Gentiles. So one of the first moves that he makes, as we find in Daniel the 11th chapter, he's going to come against the king of the south, and he's going to go on the Holy Land, and he's going to stand in the temple, and he is going to say that he is God. Now won't that be interesting and profound if the beast power claims that he is of the Monrovian uh, king line of Europe. And that everybody's going to be convinced because of the movie, The Da Vinci Code and, and other movies, uh, and that's coming out in the book and so forth, that he actually has the genes of the physical Christ through Mary Magdalene. Isn't that something? Now here's what's going to happen. When he's possessed of Satan the devil, when he is raised up from that, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven, you can put in your notes there, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that he goes into the temple of God and says that he himself is God. Well, you know, that's not going to stand. Now notice. And he was given power to make war against the saints. So here is something that God always allows the wicked to do. That is to think that they are winning. And that's what happens. Give them power to make war against the saints. And to overcome them. And he was given authority over every tribe and language and nation. So here's the great counterfeit kingdom. Now notice, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. So there we have it. That's how it's going to be. Now he's going to have a partner, and that partner is going to be another beast, and that partner is going to be the false prophet, and he is going to do great signs and great wonders. 
Now let's read it here. Verse 11. And I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast before him and causes the earth and those that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great wonders so that he causes fire to come down to the earth from heaven in the sight of men. Now, you know the old saying, seeing is believing. And if he says, I'm from God, and people see this, they're going to say he's from God. But the question needs to be, which God? The God of heaven or the God of this world? Because Satan is called the God of this world. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the means of the wonders that were given to him to perform in the sight of the beast, saying to those who dwell on the earth that they should make an image for the beast which had the wound by the sword and yet lived. And he was given power to give life to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast also could speak. And he causes anyone who will not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And that's when the, the uh, how should we say, the qualifying exam to receive the mark of the beast to show that you are loyal to this new world government is going to be whether you will make the image and fall down and worship the image. That's why it's absolutely profound that in every Catholic catechism, the Ten Commandments remove the Second Commandment concerning idolatry. Yet in their own Bibles, to show the gall, the hypocrisy, and, and, and to, to show how confident that they are in, in their lying ability to change the Word of God, right in their own Bible, they leave in the Second Commandment. And he, now this he refers back to the first beast. Because the, and, and the second beast, undoubtedly, the false prophet, is undoubtedly going to be the Pope. It can't be any, anyone else. And all the religions of the world will acknowledge him, just like they do the first beast. And they say, oh, now we have a wonderful system. We have cultural diversity. We have, we have uh, all of the good things that we have here, multiculturalism, and everyone loves each other and accepts each other, except for those people who won't go along with this system and receive the mark of the beast. So they're going to be killed. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor. See, because it has to be a government edict to do it to make it a requirement. He causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands and their foreheads, so that no one may have the ability to buy and sell unless he has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And you can see how that is coming. It's going to be everywhere and in everything this whole system, until the final thing is the mark of the beast in the right hand or in the forehead. 
So it's going to be quite a thing that's going to take place. And let's see what's going to happen, because then this fills in the gap from Pentecost up to trumpets. And it's going to be quite a thing. Now, let's ask the question, as we saw on Pentecost, first there's the sign of the Son of Man in heaven that shines like the light of day. And apparently it comes closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to the earth. Everyone is going to see that. Everyone is going to know that something profound has happened because as we saw on Pentecost, the heavens are rolled back as a scroll. And God shakes the heaven and shakes the earth and shakes the sea and the dry land and everything that there is. It's going to be an awesome time indeed. And then the resurrection takes place, and, and everyone meets Christ in the air on the sea of glass. Now, how big will the sea of glass be when it finally comes down to the earth close enough in the clouds? And I think it's going to be plenty close enough so that the people of the world are going to be able to see it. And that they are going to figure that this is an alien invasion, which is actually true from this point of view. We and Christ and the angels are the aliens. Not these silly looking things that they depict in the movies. Those are not aliens. Those are, those are silly things for people to be deceived. Now, how big will the sea of glass be? How high will it be? It's going to be in the clouds. Now, the highest clouds are 60,000 feet. So maybe it's going to be like 10 or 15,000 feet, but every eye is going to be able to see it. Now, when the saints are resurrected on Pentecost, does the sea of glass move around the earth in accordance with the sun? And the dead are raised and brought up to the sea of glass all during the time that it makes its trip around the earth. And then does it stop and hover over Jerusalem? Now that's a very distinct possibility. How big will this be? Well, it's going to be enough to accommodate all the saints, right? Yes, it will be. So let's read that again. Let's review here in Revelation 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and awesome, seven angels having the seven last plagues. And this is going to lead up to the finality of trumpets, which will cap it off. For in them is filled up the, uh, the wrath of God. Now verse 2. And I saw a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So how big is this sea of glass going to be? We will just review it here. They sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of the Lamb. And uh, then it says, verse 4, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you only are holy. And all the nations shall come and worship before you. Now that won't take place right away. That's a prophecy. Shall. 
for your judgments have been revealed. And then, right after that, we'll take a look at what happens. Let's set the stage and see what the world is going to be like and then bring it all together in Revelation 16. First of all, let's go to Isaiah 13. Let's see where it talks about the day of the Lord. And this is the day of the Lord, which he is going to execute upon the earth. Now, it talks about the burden of Babylon, verse 1. So this is Babylon the Great, as it's, as it's called there in Revelation 18. Babylon the Great. Isaiah 13, in verse 6. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall, shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them, and they shall be in pain as a woman that travails. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames." Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Now this is going to be, as we have seen before, this is going to be so fantastic that it says, like it confirms here in verse 10, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine, and I will punish the world. Now, I want you to understand and grasp that all of this is a worldwide setting. I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud deceased and that is personified in the beast and the false prophet, and will lay low the haughtiness of men. I will make man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall be moved out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Now, the wrath of God is contained in the seven last plagues. And in the day of his fierce anger. And so God is going to execute his wrath. Now, as we talked about, let's come here to Joel, the second chapter. And let's see where it describes the armies of Revelation 8 and 9. And then that leads up to where we will be in Revelation 15 and 16 again. So we need to set the stage so we know what is going on here. But notice the warning that is given. Joel, the first chapter. It talks about the day of the Lord. And the Feast of Trumpets is the day of the Lord to execute his vengeance. Verse 15, chapter 1, book of Joel. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. As a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. This is from God. This is not from man. But this is God. We saw how that men have their armies, how the things take place in Revelation 6, then Revelation 8. It's the angels of God against Satan and the demons. And now here, 
God sets his hand. That's what it's going to culminate in. Now, when it talks about this army that comes from the from the east, the army of 200 million. Now, it talks about the day of the Lord. Verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. And that's why we have to have the Feast of Trumpets, so that we know, we understand, that Christ is going to return. The day of the Lord is coming. And it needs to be a warning for us that we get our lives right. And a warning for the world that they are going to know that it is God who's intervening. The very God they rejected, the very one that they have despised, the very one that they figure is going to be a nice, meek little lamb is coming and returning in power and glory and authority such as the world has never, never seen in the most awesome and profound way that has will ever be. There will never be another day like this. We need to understand it, brethren. God has called us to participate in some awesome things. Now let's continue here. Joel, the second chapter. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and strong. There has never been the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. That means all the way down through the millennium. Of course, when Christ is here ruling during the millennium, nothing like this is going to happen. This is the culmination and the end of the rule of man and Satan, the devil, and it is coming in such a way that it is literally going to destroy almost everything on the earth. You see, the great cities of the nations need to be destroyed. All their temples, all their idols, everything that men have made is going to be destroyed. And so we're going to have quite a job rebuilding this earth. It is going to be something. I want us to, 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 uh, have a, a, a little broader scope and understanding of what's going to take place. This is going to be God directly intervening and doing it. Now, then it talks about the army. And it's very interesting. The army, it comes and runs upon the walls and climbs in the houses. You know, they have uniforms right now that they're developing for soldiers that will actually give medication to their bodies instantly when they are wounded so they can keep on going and fighting. And it sounds much like what they have here. And who knows what will happen? Will they develop an army where they implant chips where they put it into them and program them to to go fight a battle, and the generals are back there and the commanders are back there running all of these by remote controls. You know, all of these things are possible. We need to think about these things. This is going to be something. Now, let's ask the question, where will the sea of glass finally come and be stationary? Now, that's going to be over the area of Palestine. How big will it be? I've asked the question before, and I've asked it to myself many times because I've been thinking on this. Now, Ben Ambrose wrote a very wonderful paper, and he got together with a mathematics 
uh, instructor and figured out the math of what it would take for every eye to see the return of Jesus Christ, how far out it would have to be when the sign of the Son of Man is first seen, and how close it comes to the earth and so forth. And he has the question, how big will the sea of glass be? Well, it's going to have to be big enough to accommodate all the saints down through all the history of the world. So who knows how big that is going to be? Is it going to be 50 by 50 miles? Now, that's pretty big. And what is the world going to think when they look up there and see this? And how do we know that it's going to be over Palestine, right over Jerusalem? Well, Joel, the third chapter, tells us. Joel 3 and verse 2. I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will plead there, uh, plead with them there for my people and my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among all the nations. So he's going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That is in the land of Palestine. We also will see a little bit later that that is called Armageddon. And it shows in other prophecies that the blood is going to run up to the horse's bridle. You can figure blood being six, eight feet deep in the valley of Jehoshaphat. God is going to bring about a slaughter that is going to be just almost unreal. But that's the only way that God is going to be able to conquer this earth, get rid of Satan the devil. Get rid of the demons. Get rid of the armies. Get rid of all of the, the things that, that man has done against God. Now, when they see the sea of glass up there, and they begin to experience some of the things that God is doing to them, we're going to see what they're going to do. Now, if you haven't seen the movie Independence Day, you be sure and see that. Because that shows how that in the midst of aliens from outer space coming to this earth, that all the nations get together and rescue the earth. Now we're going to change views. See, Now we're going to be looking at it from God's point of view down on the earth rather than on the earth, you see, just seeing what is here. We're going to see it all. And we're going to see how God is going to do it. This is going to be something. You see, and this is going to fulfill another promise that God has given to all the saints. For God has said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And he's going to execute that. Now, let's come back to Psalm 149. This is quite a verse. Psalm 149, when you understand what it's saying here. And I believe that this is talking about the time being on the sea of glass. Psalm 149. Praise you the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the saints. Well, when is the congregation of the saints going to be all congregated together? At the resurrection, and where is that? On the sea of glass. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. 
Let them praise his name. And isn't that what it says we do back in Revelation 15? We sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. And here's another one we're going to sing. Let them praise him in the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. And that salvation is to be in glorified form, isn't it? And we receive that, and we're on the sea of glass. Let all the saints be joyful in glory. You're going to look at your new body. You're going to look at your <laughs> your new self, you know. And we're going to be joyful in that. God is going to give us something marvelous, you see. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in, in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to avenge, uh, to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise you the Lord. So we're going to do it. Now let's go to Psalm, the second Psalm here, and let's look down on the earth from God's perspective and see what's happening. Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing, to even imagine that they can fight against God and win. Is anything more vain than that? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're going to say, look, if we can turn back these aliens which are up here on whatever kind of apparatus this is, and I imagine that they're trying to shoot rockets up there, they're trying to shoot off other things to try and destroy it, and it just bounces off as if it's nothing. See? Well, they're going to be really raging. This is going to be something indeed. See? saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy mount of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord says unto me. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for an inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now let's come back to Revelation 16 and see how that's going to be, because that's exactly what we're, we're looking at here, viewing now from the sea of glass. Here's what's going to take place. Verse 5, Revelation 15. And after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So here the saints are going to see all of that. And the seven angels who had the seven last plagues came out of the temple. And they were clothed in linen, pure and bright, girded about the chest with golden breastplate. Quite a thing, isn't it? Here are these angels to do the will of God. So this is how God is going to fight against them, directly from him, right out of his temple. 
And one of the four living creatures gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives into the ages of eternity. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Then chapter 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the angels, Go and pour your vials of the wrath of God unto the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his vial unto the earth, and an evil grievous sore fell upon the men who had the mark of the beast and upon those who were worshiping his image. Now, it's going to be something, see, because the mark of the beast is not just an accounting system and buying and selling system. It is for total control. And so when these people give up their free moral agency to Satan the devil, they are going to pay the price. And so this grievous sore, whatever it's going to be, now I don't know if it's going to start where the mark of the beast is and spread to the whole body uh, on their hand or on their forehead. It doesn't tell us. But that is their just punishment. Probably most of them will die. Verse 3, And the second angel went and poured his vial into the sea, and it became blood, like that of a dead man. And every living soul in the sea died. The whole ocean is going to become a petrifying stench of dead fish and dead whales and dead men and sunken ships. It's going to be awesome. See, when Satan and men get together and defy God and think that they can turn back the hand of God, then God has to intervene and let them know who is in charge. And notice, all of these weapons God can use at any time. These are the same weapons that he used back when he fought against Pharaoh, right? Remember in the book of Exodus? Yes, indeed. Verse 4, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and in the fountains of waters, and they became blood. Now what's this going to do to all the eco-freaks out there? <laughs> Environmental Nazis. You see, God is going to destroy it. We need to understand that. We need to understand this. The only thing worth saving on this earth will be Israel and the people that repent. Otherwise, God would utterly destroy it all. But because he says he won't, he's not going to. Now, how do the angels view this? How should we view this kind of destruction? There are going to be some people say, well, that's not the Jesus that I worship. Well, let me tell you something. If the Jesus you worship is not almighty and can't do these things, he is not the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. So here's how the angels view it. And I heard the angel of the waters say, you are righteous, O Lord, who are and was even the Holy One, in that you have executed this judgment. For they have poured out the blood of saints and prophets. 
and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. So there's the complete vengeance of God. And I heard another voice from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous. God says, Yes, the men on this earth deserve this. This is his judgment. Well, that's why Jeremiah said that the dead are going to be strewn from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth as far as the eye can see. Now the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given to scorch men with fire. And notice the attitude of all these things coming. You would think that they would repent. You would think that they would have some fear of God, wouldn't you? No, they don't. What happens? They blasphemed the name of God who has authority over these plagues and did not repent to give him glory. That's quite a thing. Now then, to show how profound and evil that the beast and the false prophet and Satan are, the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So can you imagine having the mark of the beast, the grievous sore, having, having blood to drink instead of water, having been scorched by the sun, and now it's so dark, probably just like it was back there in Egypt, that they felt the darkness. Back then, they stayed in bed for three days. Couldn't go out. And yet, it says, they did not repent of their works. Now here's the last ditch effort that's going to take place. You talk about Satan deceiving to the very end. And men being gullible to believe it. Let's read it here. And the sixth angel poured out his vial into the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings of the rising of the sun might be prepared. So the armies are still there. You see, God hasn't done this to everybody everywhere. The armies are still going to come. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For these are spirits of demons working miracles going forth to the kings of the earth, even of the whole world, to gather them together to the battle of the great day of the Almighty God. So they're all being gathered for this battle. And this is the final climactic battle of all the disasters and wars and holocausts that have taken place in the great tribulation. This is the finality. And that's what this day of trumpets pictures. The final battle, the final war, the final end of these things, you see. Now then he gives a little warning here. Jesus said, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one who is watching. Now this is a warning for us. And is keeping his garments so that he may not walk naked That they and they may not see his shame. In other words, here's a warning to the Laodiceans when they're reading these things 
that they better get their lives squared around. You know, instead of being lukewarm and oh-hum and all, all glad-handing and all socializing and all of this thing, brethren, we have got a tremendous mission ahead of us. We've got the greatest thing to look forward to that has ever been since the creation of the world. And we are going to be a part of all of these events that are going to culminate in the end of the rule of man and Satan, the devil. Now that's something. And when you read back there in Romans, the eighth chapter, the world is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's us. First thing you're going to do, though, is fight against God. Now, verse 16, And he gathered them together in a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, or the Hebrew, Armageddon, Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, they're all there. They're all ready to fight. God ends it quickly. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is finished. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were on the earth, so mighty a quake and so great. That's something. You read through the book of Revelations. This earth is going to be shaken and shaken and shaken and shaken and shaken over and over again, all during that last three and a half year period. And here's the greatest quake that it has, has been. And the great city was divided in three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. All their buildings are going to collapse. Everything in these big cities is going to be utterly ruined and destroyed. And great Babylon, Babylon the Great came into remembrance before God to give her the wine, uh, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island disappeared and no mountains were found. So, you know, there's no place to go hide. See? God is going to make it you either repent and get right with him or the end is here. And great hail, each stone the weight of a talent, that's 180 pounds, fell upon, fell down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, for the plague was exceeding great. What an awesome thing that this is. That's how Christ is going to return. It is going to be something. It is going to be absolutely just the, the most fantastic thing that we could ever imagine. Now let's come to Revelation 19 and we'll see the finality. The finale, if we could put it that way. Verse 1, And after these things I heard the, the uh, loud voice of a great multitude in heaven that is on the sea of glass, up in the clouds, in the first heaven, not the third heaven, but Christ is coming down. God the Father will come down, perform the marriage and, and uh, the time of giving rewards to the saints and all of this sort of thing so we understand what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and so forth. And after the seventh last plague is poured out, 
the great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! The salvation and the glory and the honor and the power belong unto the Lord our God. Now this is the hymn we're going to sing. For true and righteous are his judgment. For he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And they said a second time, Hallelujah! And her smoke ascended upward into the ages of eternity. In other words, that smoke is going to go up and go out into the vastness of the universe and there will be specks of it just going on, clear out through the whole galaxy and the universe. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and all who fear him, both small and great. And I heard the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty has reigned. Let us be glad and shout with joy, and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now this is the beginning of the salvation of the world. So no one understand this. When God sets his hand to save the world, he is going to save it. But in order to save it, it is going to have to be nearly destroyed. And it was granted to her that she should be clothed in fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So they're going to take place. They're going to come to pass. And see, the world won't know this because they don't keep the feast of God. They don't keep the Sabbath, the Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, or the last great day. They don't know what God is doing. But God has revealed that to us his mystery and his secret plan that he has proposed in himself. And we are an integral part of this. So, brethren, see, this, these words are, are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, See that you don't do this. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, who worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heavens open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. Now the final battle comes. This is going to be awesome indeed. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no one knows except him. And he was clothed with a garment dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now that goes right back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And the armies in heaven were following him, 
uh, on white horses. That's going to be us. So we're going to be given a spiritual horse. We're going to get on it, and we're going to go. And they were clothed in fine linen, white and pure. Now Christ is going to do the fighting. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he shall shepherd them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fury and the wrath of Almighty God. See, God is saving up all of this for one last final battle. And it's going to be something. And on his garment and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of chief captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the flesh of all of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all, free and bond, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war with him who sits on the throne and with his army. So here John was looking down and seeing that. That's what we're going to see when we start coming down off the sea of glass and we're on those white horses and we're coming down with Christ. And here are the birds flying, circling, coming for all this flesh that is going to be and here we're coming down out of the clouds with Christ on our horses. And so that that's going to be quite a thing. Let's go back to the book of Zechariah now and let's let's pick up some more as as Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story. Now let's see what's going to happen to those that fight against Christ. Zechariah 14 this is going to be quite a thing. There's no defense for this. doesn't matter what kind of army that you think you have. It doesn't matter what weapons you think you may have. No one's going to be able to fight against this. Now, Zechariah 14 and verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. And that's where he's gathered them, right? Yes. Their flesh shall consume away while they, they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume out of their mouth. In other words, the flesh is just going to fall off their bodies, and the flesh is just going to collapse, and the skeletons fall over, and that's the end of the enemy. Now, you tell me what man has any power against God to stop that. Boy, no man has. Now let's come back to Revelation 19. First thing that needs to be taken, be done. You need to get rid of the leaders. Revelation 19 and verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet who worked the miracles in his presence, by which he had deceived those who had... Uh, who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. 
So God preserves them alive. Their flesh doesn't fall off them like the others. But they just look at their armies and see all of this going on and all of their soldiers just becoming like crumpled heaps of rotten flesh and bones and blood spewing everywhere and guts spewing everywhere. You know, this is going to be an awesome sight. And the rest were killed by the sword of him who sits on, on the horse, even the sword that goes out of his mouth, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now back to Zechariah 14. Here's what's going to happen. Because we are coming back to this earth. Christ is going to stand on a Mount of Olives. Now remember, when Christ ascended into heaven, from where did he ascend? From the Mount of Olives. So he's coming right back to the Mount of Olives. And what did the angels say? When the apostles were looking up and wondering what was happening to him, he said, why are you gazing up into the heavens? This same Christ is going to return in the same way. Yes, and to the same place. Amazing, isn't it? Now, let's pick it up here in verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the west. And there shall be a very great valley. So the whole geography is going to change, isn't it? Yes, indeed. So much for the Temple Mount. <laughs> That's going to be utterly destroyed, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And they shall flee to the valley of the mountains, and the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azael. Yea, they shall flee like as, as uh, you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king, and the Lord himself shall come and all the saints with him. We're going to put our feet on the Mount of Olives with him. Now notice, verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. That's what it's going to be. Now, the rest of the story is continued with the next holy day, the Day of Atonement, because there is yet one more judgment that needs to be taken place, and that is to get rid of Satan the devil. 